Good morning, and welcome to this worship service. It's wonderful to have each of you here worshiping with us. I invite you to stand and join me in the call to worship, which is printed in your bulletin. Let us sing of the Lord's great love forever. Let us declare that God's love stands forever. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Love and faithfulness go before him. Almighty God, we sense your presence in this place. Speak to our hearts and minds during this time together. Infuse us with your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts your love, so that wherever we go and whatever we do, we will serve and honor you. This we pray in your name. Amen.
Amen. What a great word. It is great to see you this morning as we gather on this uh, chilly Sunday morning. And uh, good to see your smiling face here. We're glad to have the women's choir from the college here as well. Take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship this morning. Thank you, choir, for that beautiful anthem. Our Old Testament scripture reading is Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, 
He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before him in shears it is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he had suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward to assist us with the giving of our tithes and offerings, please stand for the doxology. so generous to us. All that we have is a gift from you. Help us to serve one another so that we may reflect your spirit and goodness. Amen. You may be seated.
During the season of Lent, we're going to be taking some time each week for silence. In the um, busy noise of our world, sometimes we, we don't take time just for quiet, just for silence. And sometimes even in worship, we don't. And so during this season, we're going to take some time just to, for silence, to hear God speaking to us to center our hearts on the Spirit, to prepare our hearts, to uh, listen to what God wants to say to us. We're going to begin with the uh, prayer of confession, and afterwards we will have a few moments of silence and then offer the pastoral prayer. After the prayer of confession, uh, before the silence, if you'd like to come to the altar and use this as a place where you offer your prayers today, uh, please join me when this prayer is complete. Let us pray together. Eternal God, our judge and redeemer, we confess that we have tried to hide from you, for we have done wrong. We have lived for ourselves and apart from you. We have turned from our neighbors and refused to bear the burdens of others. We have ignored the pain of the world and passed by the hungry, the poor, and the oppressed. In your great mercy, forgive our sins And free us from selfishness, that we may choose your will and obey your commandments. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Father, we come to this moment of prayer because we need you. We proclaim that you are good and merciful. You are the almighty God. We come into your presence recognizing how much we need you. We pray this morning for all who are struggling with grief. The various forms in which it comes to us in this world. We pray for your comforting presence upon all who grieve. We pray for all who are struggling with issues of health. We think especially of Rich Reynolds and Calvin and Laurel Bucher, Warren Woolsey and Bill Getty, Phil Muker, Mike Raybuck, Jill Tyson, Bruce Brenneman, Bev Rett. Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Crystal Blake, Emily Cricklar, and others who may be on our minds today. We pray for your healing grace upon each of them. 
Father, we pray for the ministries of this church. We thank you for all the ways in which uh, the church ministers to our needs and the needs of others. And this morning we pray especially for the nominating committee. This group of people who have been given the task to help us in choosing leaders for this coming year. We pray for wisdom and insight and an overwhelming sensitivity to your spirit in this process. We pray for the ministry of the church beyond us. And we thank you for the Belfast Free Methodist Church. Pastor Mackmer, pour out your blessing upon this congregation in all that they do and their, in their witness to the community and beyond. And we pray that, that they will be a beacon of light and hope to people in need. And Father, we think of the wider world. We pray this morning for people who do not have adequate shelter in this terrible cold. We are grateful for the shelter we have, but we know there are many who do not. We pray that you will protect them. Lord, we, we don't want to be, to be guilty of what James describes, of praying for people and not doing anything about it. So, Father, open our eyes to how we may help. We thank you for the organizations and the people who are in places to specifically be a shelter. And if there are ways that we can assist, help us to see that and even look for those. We pray for, for this world. And we pray for Don Little as he is in ministry in North Africa right now. Anoint him as he helps your servants there to more adequately share the gospel with people around them. And we pray for our brothers and sisters who face persecution. We are so grateful for the new translations that Wycliffe is, uh, is working on. We recognize that they are being done in very dangerous places. Great opposition. So protect the people who are working let the translation make its way to the end in a timely way that the people of these nations might, might understand who you are in their own language and come to know who you are in faith and trust. Father, we thank you for your grace upon us. Thank you for being present here with us. Continue to open our eyes and our hearts to you and all that you want to do in this place, we offer our prayer in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who went to the cross, and the one who leads us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
Our New Testament scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord.
Please be seated. I don't know if this has been your experience or not, but I have come to realize that sometimes church can be ugly. Sometimes church is just really messy. I've been in churches through the years. I've, I've heard stories in churches through the years of you know, fights and people yelling at each other and people not speaking to each other anymore. Uh, all kinds of disagreements and arguments. I read about one church recently that was getting into an argument about whether they should, they should keep the pastor or not. Now, if you're going to argue about something, that's something you should be arguing about, I think. That's, now you're talking about some important stuff, right? But they, you know, whether you, whether they had such a volatile argument, they had to call the police. A couple people were stabbed. One person had a head injury from being hit by a metal chair. I mean, I have to admit, I have not seen violence to that level in the church before. It's just totally crazy. But the reality is, the church, despite what we want it to be, is imperfect. It's messy. It's there's struggles. And that's because, quite frankly, people like you and me are part of it. I mean, you know, we, we want the church to be perfect, even though it's filled with people who are imperfect. And the reality of, of this has been going on for a long, long time, probably since God's people have been God's people. Stuff's been happening. And now we come to this letter of Paul's to the church of Philippi, and something is going on there too. I mean, all the, all the letters are written for some kind of issue that the churches are dealing with. And we come to chapter 2, and Paul seems to intimate that there's a lot of disagreement among them, and, and he, he challenges them about that. And they're having difficulties, and what is his solution? Well, he starts out by saying, look, if, in verse 1, if, if Jesus means anything to you, if, quite frankly, if I mean anything to you, get along with each other. Stop doing this. Make up with each other. Be one in mind and spirit. And then beginning in verse 3, he begins to describe what he wants that to look like. And he says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Great advice. Powerful stuff. I mean, in many ways, it's sort of psychology 101, right? I mean, you, if you want people to treat you better, you treat them better. If, if you want to get along with people, then don't treat them poorly. And, and every employer, every person who is over a group of people would say, this is how I want you to act. This is how I want you to interact with each other. Don't fight with each other. Stop being so selfish with each other. Look out for each other's interests. I mean, it's the kind of thing that you would find kind of advice that could be easily taken and probably is wanted to be taken in any civic organization, any place of business, anywhere people come together. It reminds me of the, the book that came out in the late 1980s, uh, Robert Fulgham's book, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Anybody read that book? 
A few people. I thought that was fascinating. Book. Kind of humorous. Here's what he says. You learn in kindergarten that you just take the rest of your life and this is it. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. That's always a good one. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out into the world, watch for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. Be aware of wonder. Great advice. And in a sense, that's kind of what Paul is saying if we stop at verse 4. If we stop at verse 4, Paul's really saying, work harder, do better, try harder. But he doesn't stop at verse 4. Because he's not just talking to a civic organization, he's not just talking to business people, he's not just talking to any group of people, he's talking to the church. And to the church, he says, it's not enough to want this advice that is really good... What you need is to have the mind of Christ. What you need is to understand is that to be the church that you're supposed to be, to solve these problems that you're having, have the mind of Christ in you. And when he talks about the mind of Christ, it doesn't just mean think like Christ, so that's where it starts. Or have the attitude of Christ, so again, that's where it starts. But it's having the mind of Christ, it's thinking like Christ, having the attitude of Christ that leads to the behavior of Christ. Because the truth is, if you don't behave this way, then people would have a pretty good argument that maybe you don't really think this way. And so Paul says it's the mind of Christ. And what does the mind of Christ look like? Beginning in verse 6, he says, Though he was God, He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. What he's saying is that the mind of Christ is selflessness, self-emptying, risk-taking, Self-giving. He's saying all those opportunities that you have to grab your rights, what is rightfully yours, you don't do it. You let it go. Because that's how Jesus lived his life. And I think, in essence, he's saying to be a follower of Jesus is to live your life in such a way that you're on a trajectory to a cross. When you think about the decisions that we make, when you think about the the way that we treat each other, when you push that to its natural conclusion, if it's like Jesus, it's going to lead us to a cross. It's going to lead us to giving up, to death of ourselves. It's going to lead us to self-emptying kind of life. 
there are a lot of people who have talked about that kind of life through the years. Especially in our tradition, we talk about this thing of sanctification or holiness. And often it's used to describe this. And often this idea of sanctification and holiness, you, we get the impression that this is, for, this is for a select group of people. This is for people who, have, who are really, really hardcore about following Jesus. This is about people who are, who are really on the inner circle of being a follower of Jesus. But I don't think that's reality. I think the truth is, living this way is what it means simply to be a follower of Jesus. It's not about an, some kind of elite Christian force of people. It, it's just being a Christ follower. You live with this mindset. I mean, Paul's really just saying what Jesus said. In, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, if you, if you don't want to, to deny yourself and take up your cross, then you're not worthy of being my follower. In chapter 16, Jesus says, anyone who wants to follow me, not a select group of people, but anyone who wants to follow me must, must turn from their selfish ways, take up their cross and follow me. It's just the definition of what it means to be a Christ follower. And I think it has some bearing then on how we describe what it means to be a Christian. Because often when we talk about being a Christian, we often use to describe that as, well, this person's a Christian because they prayed this prayer. And praying the prayer is important and it's good and it's helpful and we all need to confess and we need to repent. That's a part of the, of, of the process. But it feels like that Prayer is the end of our journey. When in reality, it's propelling us on the journey. And I think this is one of the things that people get confused about. To be a Christ follower is not about just believing right things. It's not just doing right things. But it's living our lives in such a way that... We are on a trajectory to the cross. I have to admit, I wish it wasn't that way. I don't want it to be that way. I'm reading this passage looking for loopholes. You know, I, I want Jesus to say, well, you know, that was for the Philippians. But you guys don't need to worry about that. There was a special circumstance. They were dealing with some stuff. And, yeah, just, you, that's their thing. You, you, have a, you just take a different perspective. That's what I really want Jesus to say that. I want him to say, you don't have to do this. This doesn't have to be the way you live. But I don't sense that being the case. And you and I are continually faced in our relationships. Because remember, this is really about relationships. We're faced with the, the decision. Are we going to engage in our relationships as a part of our journey that is taking us toward a cross or something else. And we're continually being tempted to grab for what is rightfully ours, just as Jesus is. I can't even imagine how many thousands of times throughout his life, Jesus is face-to-face with a situation or a person or a circumstance where the temptation is to, to grab his godness. And to say... Wait a minute, you're, you're not going to treat me like that. You're not going to say those things to me. I'm not going to let you get away with that 
for against me. I am God, and I'm going to show you that. And you really see it the last 24 hours of his life. He's in the garden, and they come to arrest him. Everything in his being wanted to say, wait a second, you're not going to arrest me, I'm God. And then they, and, and then they beat him. And then they put nails in him. And then they hang him on a cross. And every one of those moments, you know the temptation is so real to say, stop. You don't understand who I am, and I'm going to help you understand who I am. And the ultimate temptation had to be as he's hanging from the cross, and the religious leaders, these hypocritical, evil religious leaders are mocking him and saying, if you're really the son of God, come down and show us that. Wow. I got to tell you, if I actually got to the place of hanging on the cross, I'd come down. And I'll show you. Right? I mean, that's human nature. We all want to do that. Because we all want to grasp at it. And Jesus doesn't. It's, it's the most courageous way in the world to live your life. There's nothing more courageous than not grabbing what is rightfully ours. Nothing more courageous than stepping back and saying, I have every right in the world to let those people know how valuable I am, how important I am, how much I know, how much I can do. I have every right in the world to claim all of the good stuff about who I am and to make sure they know that, it takes great courage to not do that. And that's the call in our lives. And it's mainly in our relationships. I've often read this passage and thought to myself, okay, I think this means I surrender things to God. And certainly that's important, a part of it. But I, I tend to think of living this way as I, I give up things for God. I, I give more of my possessions away. I go places in the world God wants me to go. I, I, I do things that God wants me to do. And obviously that's very important. But specifically here, Paul is saying, this is about how you relate to each other. Which may be more of a challenge for us. Because in the midst of these conversations we have, in the midst of committee meetings, in the midst of being the church, there are all kinds of opportunities for us to say, wait a second, you're not seeing how valuable I am. You're not seeing how important I am. You're not understanding how smart I am and how much I have to bring to this. And it doesn't mean that we don't share our opinions and we don't engage in the conversation as whatever we're talking about. But we do that in a way that isn't being driven by, look at me. And if we walk out of a meeting and we've accomplished what we need to and no one is walking out thinking we're so awesome, that's okay. And I think most of this takes place not in these monumental moments of life that we want to think it does. I think it takes place in the commonness of every day. Just being with people. 
Fred Craddock says that when we talk about surrendering our life to Christ, we often think of it as if we brought a $1,000 bill and laid it at God's feet and said, here's my life. He says, I think more than likely what God will say to us when we do that is, take that $1,000 bill, go to the bank and cash it in for $1,000 worth of quarters. And you bring those quarters back and you spend your life giving out quarters. And if you want to, because if you want to surrender to me, it's not just about a moment, it's about life. And it's often in the commonness of life and it's with people in the commonness of life. And it's having a conversation with the neighbor kid when you'd rather tell him to get lost. And it's, and it's listening to people talk about their lives when you'd rather talk about yours. And it's not having to be the center of every agenda that comes along. It's just giving away this quarter here, 50 cents there, sometimes a dollar. But it's just in the everyday moments of life that if we think about it and we, and we watch it go to its natural conclusion, it's going to take us to a cross. I think this is how we were created to live. I think when God created human beings, this is a part of how we were created. In Genesis, it says that God created human beings in his image. And scholars have been debating for centuries, what does that mean? What what if the image of God is in us? And there are probably a number of things, but I think this is one of them. Because I think Jesus embodies the nature of God. Scripture says he is the perfect image of God. And I don't think Jesus exists in this in some form and then comes to earth and lives this way and then goes back to heaven and lives the way he used to live. I don't think his life here of selflessness and humility and self-emptying is, is just sort of a, an anomaly to who he really is. It's who he is. Because the opposite of these things don't sound much like the kingdom of God. Arrogance. Self-centeredness. Selfishness. Grabbing. Clutching. I don't think that describes who God is. I think this describes who God is. And so we are created in that image. And it's when sin entered the picture that we lost that. And, and God has been trying to help us understand that all through history. And Jesus is finally the perfect image of what it means to be God. And Paul says, this is what you were created to do, and this is what you should be. This is what it means to look like God. And I think when we get to heaven, this is how we're going to be with each other. Because again, what's the alternative to that? I think, I think it's heaven because... We all have the mind of Christ. It is what heaven is. It is having the mind of Christ and being in the presence of God with his mind and his attitude and his heart and his being. That's what it will be, which is probably why when Lewis writes The Great Divorce, he says there are people who don't want to go to heaven because heaven offers them nothing that they want. And when we pray, your kingdom come, 
on earth as it is in heaven, this is a part of what we're praying. That the church would be like Christ. That we would so relate to each other like Christ that we would actually begin to resemble relationships in heaven. And I think this is part of what Paul is talking about in verses 9 to 11 when he talks about Jesus being exalted. It feels like he's saying it's a cause and effect. Because Jesus comes to earth, lives this way, when he goes to heaven, he doesn't have to do that anymore. I wonder if what he isn't saying is that both images are of the nature of Jesus as self-emptying, Selfless, humble, risk-taking. The difference is, in verses 6 to 8, it's what that looks like in the midst of evil. In the midst of a world of opposition and, and power fighting against that being the reality. And in verses 9 to 11, we get a picture of what it looks like when that's been removed. What I find fascinating about this passage is that Paul drops this passage into the middle of a letter that's primarily calling people to live a life of joy. And he's saying, this is about, I want you to live a life of joy. I want you to rejoice over and over again. Rejoice, give thanks, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And in the middle of this, all of this about rejoicing and celebrating who we are in God, he says, now, this is what it looks like in Jesus. And I think there's something about that that is telling us, while this feels like a burden, and it feels like drudgery, and it feels almost like a punishment to live your life in such a way that it's on a trajectory toward the cross, it feels like we've done something wrong, and so we're going to have to face this. But the truth of the matter is, it is the pathway to joy. It is the pathway to to all that God wants to bless us with. Because it is the pathway of Jesus. It It is moving toward what we are created to be. And Paul even writes a little bit later on in chapter 2. I will rejoice even if I lose my life. Pouring it out like a liquid offering to God. Just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. You should rejoice and I will share your joy. And I think what maybe the hardest thing for us is for me. Is to begin to see the call of this call of how we live. Really as as a great joy. That there is joy in being selfless. There is freedom in being selfless. There is freedom in in relating to each other in this way. Does it create burdens for us and hardship? And do people mistreat us? Of course they do. Just like they did Jesus. But even in the midst of that, there is joy. Because we are becoming more and more like we were created to be in the image of God. And we are experiencing more and more of who God is in us. You know, during the season of Lent, 
we, we think a lot about the cross, and we should. And we tend to think of the cross from the context of being so grateful for what Jesus has done for us. And we should. I mean, all this week, the song has been going through my mind. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross, my friend. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross, my friends. I was just overwhelmed by, by the gift of what Christ has done for us. And we ought to be grateful. But in our gratitude, to hear the call of the cross too. And to recognize that the more positively we respond to that call, the more grateful we will be. And the more we will embrace all that God has done for us as we allow him to really shape us into this image of Jesus. It's what will enable us to be the church. To be the people of God we're called to be. To have the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, the spirit of Christ, to behave like Christ. Allows us to be the church that looks like Christ. Gracious Father, we want to thank you. Thank you for the cross. And thank you for the privilege of knowing the joy of selflessness. Pray that you will open our eyes to see to see all that we can be individually and corporately when we want the mind of Christ. Give us grace to live this truth. We pray this through Jesus. Amen.
receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.